chapter 12 we'll begin reading in verse 1 Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 when you got it say so and the word of the Lord says I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Lord, we thank you this morning. Thank you for your presence that is here. We thank you for your grace that is abundant in our hearts. We just thank you, Lord God, for your word that is inspired for our direction, for our instruction, for our edification, that we may be equipped for every good work. God, I pray that you would use me this morning, Lord God, to speak unto your people. I pray that you would give each of us ears to hear what your spirit says to us, your church. And I ask you, Master, to just be glorified in our next few moments together. I pray that our hearts would be knit together as the scriptures confront us. May you be glorified, and as a result, may we be doers of your word, exalters of your name, extenders of your kingdom, truly the light and the salt of this earth. We ask you this all in Jesus' good name. Someone said, you may be seated in the presence of the Lord. We began a series last week, um, actually in the beginning of the year, for those of you that weren't here for the first month in January, in the beginning of the year, the pastors and I, we tag-teamed and we preached a series talking about being on mission. And we began to deal with that topic and how important it is for the church not to just come together and have a good time, but that we go out and that we do the work of the Lord as we leave this place. Um, there was a good quote that I heard, and it was something along these lines. I actually read it. Somebody posted it on Facebook, and it said this. It said that the gathered church is powerful, but the scattered church is even greater. The gathered church is powerful. When we come together, times like this of worship, powerful, glorious. But you know what? What we see here is only a glimpse of what we'll see if we will go out in that same power and with the, with the desire to make disciples. If we will go out with that same desire to do the work and what God has called us to do. And for us, sometimes as Christians, we become very uh, um, internally focused, meaning that we really want to see the presence and power of God we really want to experience God. We need a touch from God. And all of those things are all good, and I do not downplay any of them. But most of the time, and many times, that is the end of what we want from God. And I'm here to encourage you this morning that you think you feel the glory and power of God when you come together with your brothers and sisters in worship. You will experience something even greater when you go and lead a lost one unto Jesus. When you go and you experience the flooding of joy in your soul soul because the Bible says that when one comes to God, guess what happens? There is rejoicing in the presence of angels and so literally there is a party going on in heaven and guess who is leading the conga line? 
It's God Almighty. He's saying, hey, we want to be, we, I'm rejoicing because one of the lost folk, one of those who didn't know me has come across that line of faith. I know some of y'all are like ready to just check out right now. He's like, God leads a conga line. Listen, y'all. The Bible says there's rejoicing. I don't know what it looks like. I just threw that in there. All I'm saying is that there is rejoicing. There is something remarkable happening. The Bible doesn't give us very many pictures of God off of his throne. When, you know, when someone was getting ready to die by the name of Stephan, he says, I saw the Lord standing. He wasn't sitting. So we know that when someone is dying for Jesus, Jesus is standing up. That's what we know. And we also know that there's rejoicing. Now, I'm just going to let you know, most rejoicing doesn't look like this. So I'm assuming, I, this is this absolute assumption and conjecture, that is what I, I'm throwing this in there. There's got to be something exciting going on. Amen? And so ultimately what I want to encourage you is that we need to definitely continue to be on mission. And we began dealing with the topic of growing pains last week. And so as we started talking about that, we talked last week about planning to grow and how important that was. And I told you that numbers are important to God. I said that a lot of times, you know, we don't want to count or we don't want to look at how many people are coming to church, how many people are participating in discipleship, how many people are really persevering in the faith. But if we really love Jesus and we really love the work that he's called us to do we need to be concerned about those things we need to be concerned about numbers. I told you the book of, of, of numbers entirely goes on ahead and gives you all of these numbers and all of these breakdowns. And then I told you more, even the book of First, Second Chronicles, talking about different numberings and things like that that occurred. The book of Acts, it gives us plenty of numbers and the way that God decided, well, I just want to make sure that you understand what was going on. And the most important number for me is the word add. Say add. And add is not really a number, but it's part of the whole numbering process. And the Bible says this. The Bible says that God added to the church daily those who were being saved. That's why that word adding becomes so important to me. Because what I believe is that we should be living a life in which God can use us to add unto his church daily. I said this years and years ago, we were in a Bible study, and we were going through becoming a contagious Christian, and I said, we've got to be at a place where we are willing to close the deal. It is like a person who is trying to recruit someone, who, you know, to come and participate in something, or, you know, to recruit someone to a new job, and so us as Christians, we have an even greater calling. We are recruiting people to come to Jesus. We are calling people to come to repentance. We are asking people to turn from their sin and put their faith in Jesus to save them, but the one thing that is important, it is not enough for us to just have conversations with people, but we need to really go on ahead and be bold enough to ask them, are you ready to come across that line? And here's what I think, and this, this again is a picture that I see. It says that God added to the church. We are the church. Say, we are the church. So that means that he is going to add to me. He is going to use me to do what? To win people to Jesus. And so we must have a plan, and so we kind of broke down that plan last week. This week, I want to talk about preparing for growth. Say, preparing for growth. This is what I want to deal with today, and I want to give you a couple of things. In one of the books that I was reading, it's called um, Leadership, On Church Leadership, and there, there's, there's a, an example or, or a, a couple of things that the writer of that book says in dealing with growth, and he says this. He says, growth causes change. Say, growth causes change. The second thing he says is, change causes complexity. Say, change causes complexity. Say, complexity causes concern. And concern causes conflict. So when you want to grow, the end result is going to be conflict. 
If you want to grow, there's going to be some conflicting ideas. There's going to be some. You see, the reason why Pastor Robert, he didn't, you know, he didn't really get into it for everyone. But just to reiterate, I told you all to switch seats. Why? Just because I want to look around and be lost? No. It was because I said, look, if we're going to grow, we got to get a different mindset. We have to get a different understanding. And so you know what? Don't look at your seat as your seat. It's not your seat. Sit in a different seat every week. Except for Pastor Robert and his wife. They're going to stay in the front somewhere. Make sure they have enough room and everything operates accordingly, right? And so ultimately, the fact of the matter, which is beautiful, they got a few front row seats, right? So they can switch around, glory to God. But ultimately, the point was we get comfortable in church and we think, that's my seat. And then we get offended when we walk in and somebody else has our row because it's not just our seat, it's our row. That's my row, and then, and then we come to church. And here's the thing. I remember, you know, I, I remember having a conversation with someone a long time ago when we were in the other building. And in the other building, we just had two rows, you know, one on each side. And so our ushers, you know, we had a thing called SOS. It was called scoot over some. All right? So as the building gets, gets more full, we need you to scoot over some, move over, right? And so one person asked me, they were like, well, I get to church early so I can sit on the end seat. So is it okay for me to step out? I'm like, yeah, that's fine. You can step out of the seat. But the point of the matter is, listen, come to church early to serve. Amen? Oh, glory to God. And so ultimately, you know, I, I, want, I want to sit on the end seat. I don't want to be all cramped up in here. Listen, I said this last week, and I want to continue to say this as many times as I can remember to say it. This church is for all of the people that are not here yet. That is the mindset that we have to have, that we are not trying to make us comfortable. We're not trying to make us feel good. So we have to prepare for growth. And when you want to prepare for growth, you need to get ready for a good church conflict. We were in our, in our covenant couples class yesterday, and I want to encourage every couple, if you are not working, I really encourage you to come out. But um, Dr. Emerson, he said something. He was talking about 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He said, conflict in marriage is natural. You're going to be married, you're going to have trouble. Hallelujah. Some people are like, man, I don't understand what's going on because you didn't read the Bible. You didn't read everything the Bible had to say about marriage. You get married, you're going to have trouble in this world. So this is what the Bible says. It's like Paul is saying, look, you should stay single because all you got to worry about is just you and Jesus, right? But when you are married, you got to worry about Jesus, your spouse. It, it, there's conflict. But he said something I thought was very important. Too much conflict is a problem. Too much conflict is a problem. And so same thing goes for church. We are in covenant with each other, whether you believe it or not, whether you understand it. We are washed in the same blood, and we are part of the body. And I'll read that later on as we walk through. We're just going to read through the book of Romans chapter 12, the entire chapter. But there's one portion there where it says clearly that we are individually members of one another. Do you understand what that means, what that picture is? He's saying, like, my arm is part of the rest of my body. That's what we are as far as the body of Christ. And so God washes us with his blood, and then he brings us together. And so we need to have a mindset that prepares for growth. The reason why we come here, because you're like, well, what does Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 have to do with growth? Well, let's talk about that for a moment. And it says this. He says, I beseech you in verse 1. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God? 
And so what he's talking about is a renewal of our mind, a, mind, a mindset shift, a way of thinking that is different. And here is the thing, is that there is a great temptation for us to resist change solely because our minds will not grasp the need for change. See, many of us, as I said last week, we're like, man, it's comfortable in here. It's good. We're okay. You know, we, 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 we're, we're, we're all right. But you know what? That's the wrong mindset. The wrong mindset. We need to have a mindset that God wants. I said this last week. I'll say it again. God wants his church to grow more than we do. God wants us to reach those people who don't know Jesus. God wants us to be the light. He wants us to be intentionally living out the purposes of the gospel. To do what? To impact as many lives as possible with the name of Jesus. To lead as many people as possible to Jesus. That's what God wants us to do. But we're not going to do that if our minds don't change. We are not going to do that if we maintain the same old mentality. And most of our greatest obstacle is simply just the way we think. It's the way that we think. It's all about us, all about our life. We'll get into that a little bit deeper. Renewing of the mind into alignment with, God, with the gospel and being freed from culture or religious trends as the norm. If allowed, listen, the gospel will totally saturate our lives beginning with our way of thinking. That's what God wants to do. He wants to saturate the way we think. God wants us to read the gospel. He wants us to look. And when I say read the gospel, I'm going to specifically talk about for one moment reading the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He wants us to read that and he wants us to see what God's agenda was through Jesus. That's what he wants us to do. He wants us to get excited about things like the book of John where Jesus says the works that I do in greater you shall do. He wants us to be motivated by that stuff. He wants us to continue further on in the gospel reading in the book of Acts and see what the Holy Spirit was doing through the church so that way we will be motivated to do what? To go out there and be this glorious church that has something great to offer who? Everybody who doesn't know Jesus. That is what he wants for us. And so ultimately, when we look at this whole renewing of our mind, if we are going to grow, our minds have to change. See, our minds have to change. And let me say this emphatically. I'm not talking about positive thinking at all. I'm not talking about being an optimist. I read something on Facebook my cousin posted. I thought it was pretty hilarious. I started cracking up. And he said, and it was a little letter. Some of y'all may have seen this because you know how stuff just like circulates. But it was a little letter and it said, dear optimist, dear pessimist, and dear realist. While you were arguing about the cup being half full or half empty, I drank the milk. Signed, opportunist. And so ultimately, I think that we as Christians, we need to be opportunists. And I don't mean opportunists in a negative sense. I mean that we need to follow God and look for every opportunity to share the gospel. We don't need to be arguing about logistics and all this and that. We need to worry about all of those things and plan accordingly. But we simply need to be opportunists and look at how many opportunities God gives us to share the gospel. And so, if we are going to grow numerically, it is to no avail if we do not grow deeper in the gospel. And I want to continue to drive that home because it is not about numbers. That is not what we are going to be focused on in the sense that that is not primary. What is primary? Glorifying Jesus. What is primary? Lifting the name of Jesus. What is primary? Living for Jesus. What is primary? Worship of Jesus. That Jesus is primary. And so what we want to do, though, is we want to be faithful with the gospel because here is the reality. If we are really growing in the gospel, there, there is no way that we are not going to make a, great, make a greater and more lasting impact by the power of the gospel. So what am I saying? What I'm saying is that if we are not making impact as individuals and collectively, that means that we are really not being faithful with the gospel. And remember what I said last week. It is not about numbers. God measures our faithfulness to the gospel. 
He measures how faithful we are to the gospel. You can write this down somewhere because I thought that this was great. Pastor Reuben Cruz, who came and ministered to us, he told me this as we were sharing about some of the things I was going to preach. He said that he heard a quote and somebody said it like this, change is inevitable, but growth is optional. Change is inevitable. Growth is optional. And so the world around us is going to change. People are going to move in, move out. Different things are going to rise up. Different things are going to be popular. Different things are going to be in. As time progresses, change is inevitable. Growth is optional. So the question is, which, which option are you taking? Are you taking option, I'm just going to stay the way I am, I'm good? Or are you taking the other option, which is, I want to grow? And not only do I want to grow, but I believe that God wants me to grow. I believe that God wants the church that I'm part of to grow. Therefore, I will be part of that movement that God is bringing us into. Repeat this after me, please. Personal conformity to Christ is the first step in our preparation for church growth. Now, when I say these things, I'm going to give you three steps, and you know that I'm not the three-step kind of guy to a glorious life and all that stuff. That's not me. But what I do know is this, is that there are some things that we need to do in order to prepare in a practical manner. And these things are not, I didn't take these from a book per se. I took them directly from prayer, and as I was seeking God as, as to what it is that we need to do, these were the three things that really stood out that I believe are so important for us to prepare for. And so the first one, I'll repeat it again, personal conformity to Christ is the first step in our preparation for church growth. When the Apostle Paul pens this, chapter 12 here, he writes this actually as an entire letter, but when he gets to this portion of scripture, what he is doing is, he is talking to the people and he's saying something. If you look at your Bible in verse 36 of chapter 11, he is saying that word, therefore, I beseech you, therefore, that is a connecting word, I've told you this before, and so he says this, for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever, amen. And so what he's saying here, he's saying you are supposed to bring glory and honor to Jesus. You are supposed to honor and glorify God intentionally, not just by happenstance, not just because consequentially it happens, but no, I am intentionally living to bring glory and honor to Jesus. That is what is supposed to happen and what we're supposed to be doing. But then he goes and he brings us back to an Old Testament picture. And he takes us back to the Old Testament by talking about this word sacrifice, say sacrifice. It's an Old Testament picture. But what he says is, he says, you don't have to bring animal sacrifices in order to please God as the Old Testament folks did. What you need to do is bring yourself as a sacrifice. You need to live as a sacrifice. Are you getting a picture a little bit more as to how this ties into church growth? If you're not willing to sacrifice, the church will never grow the way God wants it to grow. Because more work, because more people means more work. Amen? If we're going to have more people, we talked about it last week. We talked about, you know, breaking the 85 and, you know, going to 108 and having that place. But when we go to two services and we talked about children's ministry, I don't know if I told you this or if I made this a point, but if we double here in number, guess what doubles in number as well? So you know what that means? We need more workers to work with children. We need more people who are willing to work, who are willing to serve in different areas. You don't think that our greeters and our ushers may need a little bit of assistance when you have more people trying to seat them and be courteous? I think they're going to need some help. And so that means there are some areas. You don't think there's going to need to be some more elders in the church, men of God who are rising up to the call to live a life that is filled with character, quality, and the way that God has called them to be because there's going to be more need of pastoral care. I want to encourage encourage you that as we grow and as God brings more people, he's not going to bring a bunch of pretty folk that ain't got no issues in their life. If we're doing our job correctly, it's going to be a mess. And I hope, see, whenever there's a mess, you know what? Someone's got to clean it up. 
And the issue with us is that we're like, yeah, I want growth, but we don't realize growth means a mess. It means bad attitudes. It means people who don't smell right all the time. It means folks who got things on that you don't necessarily agree with. How are you going to deal with them? I mean, do we really want to grow? Because if we are going to grow, then we need to be a people that understand we have to be wanting to change. And that change is calling us to sacrifice to sacrifice ourselves as living sacrifices. He goes on and he tells them here, he says, do not be conformed to this world. When you look at that word conform, it's talking about an outward conformity that denies an inward reality. Let me say that again. He's talking about an outward conformity that denies an inward reality. And so what Paul is saying to these people, he's saying, you have been washed in the blood of Jesus. You have been filled with the spirit of Christ. You are now a new creation. And what you don't want to do is you don't want to enter into the PC mentality, that political correct mentality, and begin to stifle the gospel and its work in your life to appease those around you. You don't want to live a life that is dealing with or or trying to conform to a certain way of being. You want to live out the gospel. And can I tell you the issue here? I'll tell you the issue, and this is not specific to Faith Dome. This is specific to everyone on planet Earth, especially those in the church. And it is this. One of the greatest issues within the church is our unwillingness to conform and our constant battle to maintain our independence, our autonomy, and isolation. And and listen, I'm pointing this way, but there's like three fingers pointing at me. So I'm going to point at you hard, glory to God. But just know that I deal with this just as much as anyone else. Because I bow, you know what, I I, I don't want to conform to community. I I, I don't want to really get connected. Right? I, I, I want to do activities with you. I'll eat with you once in a while, but, 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 I, but I don't really want to get involved, right? I mean, that's just my natural. Now, mind you, because of the call of God and because I understand, what I'm saying is this. Don't get it twisted because someone one day, they like totally misquoted me. I, sa- I was saying something. I was, telling, I was telling the church about how, you know, I'm not like the guy that loves to go to weddings. I go to weddings because I have to perform them usually. I mean, I don't know how many guys are like, yes, another wedding invitation. I don't know. I'm just not that guy. There may be some that are like, oh, yeah, we get to go to another wedding. I'm just not. So ultimately, you know, I talked about birthday parties in this one, this one particular time, and, and, and I told them, I said, you know, I'd rather just chill at the house and, you know, just relax. You know, I got a lot going on, whatever the case was. They took it as I was saying that I didn't want a fellowship with people. Listen, let me, let me clarify. Please invite me to your house. Please invite me, you know, let me, let, let me taste your cooking, glory to God. You know, relieve my wife for one meal, praise the Lord Jesus, and let's have a good time together. I, I, I encourage that. I say that because I'm not saying that I don't care about people. What I'm trying to do is be as open as I can and confess my sin to you so that way you don't real or you don't think that I'm just talking about you. Because when I look at these scriptures and I look at these things, God is smacking me upside and down and like, boy, that's you. I don't want to conform. I, I, I want to be independent. I, I, I don't want to depend on anyone for anything. I want to be autonomous. I want to be all by myself. I want to go on ahead. I want to be isolated. You know, I can tell you most of you are probably the same way. I want you to think about this. Think, just think about your neighbors for a moment. How many of them do you know their first name, really know them? That you're not like, man, who is, who is his name? When you see him, you're like, I know I spoke to him. 
Okay, that's good. You're like, oh, Bishop, well, I know like three names. I know like three of my neighbor's names. I can tell you right now. I know like three of them. It's like Rose and then George. I don't know George's wife's name. And then I got MJ. He's a doctor across the street. That's it. I know those three. His wife's name is MJ's wife's name is Kim. I know those three, right? And I'm like killing myself. I'm like, okay, I got to remember these things. But let me ask you the other question because some of y'all are like, I passed that test. No, you didn't. Let me ask you this. How many times have you been to their house to eat a meal? How many times have you invited them to your house to eat a meal? You know why we don't do that stuff? Because we are, we, we, we are the product of our culture. You know what our culture is? This is what our culture does. Our culture, and, we, and, and, we, and, and in preparation to growth, you got you, you to gotta conform to who? Christ, not yourself. Pastor, Pastor Chad, he had an awesome idea. He, I, I said something, I know, and I thank God that he got up here and said it. I said that a lot of people find it rude for you to come and knock on their door to share the gospel with them, right? What did Pastor Chad say? Y'all might have missed it. He said, you know what, man? You know, it might be rude to knock on someone's door, but what if you went over there and just offered them some cookies? What if you did that? you like the cookie man, you know? Or the cookie family, I don't know. And you, and, and you just did that. Just, and you didn't go over there and say, listen, I want to give you this cookie. Can I share something with you? No. You just went over there, said, hey, man, I just want to get to know my neighbors, whatever the case may be. The point of the matter is that he's thinking outside of the box of how do I break into this culture that is anti-biblical. That's not the way culture was back in the days. That's not the way things were. But our culture is this. We are extremely global in the sense that at a touch of a button, you could talk to someone in China, man. You can get information about any place, and you can talk to, I mean, you can talk to people, all, all y'all playing words with friends. I was playing words with friends with someone who lived in Singapore. When I first started playing, I was like, well, so where are you from? Because it was a girl, I guess. I'm, I'm assuming it was a girl because it was Pink Baby, but nowadays I could be wrong. Um, but ultimately, I asked the person, because I'm like, it's like 3 in the afternoon, and this person's like, man, I got to go to bed. I'm like, do they work late or something? You know, because I'm not thinking globally like that. And then the next, like, a couple, uh, you know, a couple days later, I was like, look, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I just gave them the courtesy because they spoke to me. I said, well, listen, I'm going to go to sleep, so I'll, you know, talk to you tomorrow. They were like, you're going to sleep? I'm like, yeah, it's like 1130 over here. And like, well, where are you from? Well, I'm in Florida. They were like, where are you at? Well, I'm in sunny Singapore. I was like, wow. So we have this globalization, right? It's glo you, you can get in contact with anyone. But at the same time, we are way isolated. Because we can talk to people all over the world and access all kind of information, but we don't even talk to our neighbors. We I, I'm I, 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 I. I jump out of my car, run into my garage. If I see someone that I really don't have time to talk to, I put my head down like I didn't see him. And I just, <laughs> see, y'all guilty. That's why y'all laughing, because y'all know you do the same thing. That's why it's good. We can all repent together. We got to change. How are we going to reach our neighbors? They're like, that's the guy that runs inside every time he sees me, thinking I don't see him. Yeah, that's a great gospel testimony right there. There are two equally opposed mindsets to this whole thing of conformity. And it is this, it is, it is talking about two things, and it is, one is a secular worldview, the other one is a religious worldview. And these both things are, or originate in sin, because when he says here, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, say world, that, that word world doesn't necessarily mean world, it means age. So it means whatever age you are in, whatever things are prominent in your day, don't conform to those things that have their origin in sin. What I'm telling you is that being isolated like that, that is not God's will. 
That God said it is not good for man to be alone. Therefore, it is not God's will. He said to populate the earth. So he shows us that that is not his will. He makes that clear to us. And so there is a secular worldview. There is a secular way of thinking that God says don't conform to that. And then there is a religious, say religious See, because whenever we think about don't conform to the world, right away we think about, you know what, don't be conformed to sinful ways. You know, don't be, don't, don't be acting ungodly. Don't be doing stuff. We never think about the religious way of being. We never think about how bound we become in our religion and our, you know, our religious to-do list. You know that list we start every year. They're called New Year's resolutions. Right? You're going to read the Bible through in a year. You're going to do it differently this year than you did last year. You're going to complete that. Hallelujah. Is that bad? Because y'all aren't laughing because you're offended. But listen, I'm not trying to offend you. You know, we, we, I, 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 again, I talk about me. Sometimes I start that, you know, I'm going to read it in a year, and I get to, like, the book of Leviticus. So that tells you how far I got. It wasn't really far. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Right? So I got to, like, February or something like that. doesn't mean I don't read the Bible throughout the year. The fact of the matter is sometimes it happens. But here's the point. We have our religious to-do list, and so here's the thing. The first one, when we talk about secular mindset, that is one that is directly opposed to God. It says clearly, I don't need God. I depend on myself. I can do things on my own. I don't need to go to church. I can go ahead and I can serve God, you know, by myself if I even think about God. In that whole secular mindset is the belief that, and this is where you got to be careful nowadays, because most people, not everybody, most people believe in God. They believe in a general God. Don't get so excited when they say God, like, oh, my goodness, they said God. Hold on a second. What God are you talking about? Clarify the God you're talking about. That's one of the things that when I do discipleship with my daughter and, you know, ask questions and she'll say God and I'll say Jesus. And she, you know, you know, my daughter, she's funny and she'll be like, Daddy, I know that. I'm like, okay. I know that you know that, but I need to make sure that whoever you talk to knows that as well. And you don't just talk about a general God with people and that they start telling you stuff about their God because you need to know there's a difference between the God of the Bible, the God you serve, and the general gods all around this world that people believe in. And so when we talk about this secular, there are those cosmic folk. You know, and when I say cosmic, you know, that's just another word for spiritual people. All kind of people around there that are like that. And what he's saying is don't conform to them. Don't conform to that way of being. But then there is the other group, and this is the other one that we, that, that, that we are in danger of, and that is becoming religious people. People who depend more on their own righteousness than they do on the righteousness of Christ. You know how you can tell when you're really religious, man, when you are really critical of everyone? That's like a sure sign that you are a religious person. You know, you know what's another one? It's when you have unforgiveness in your heart. You know why? Because you don't understand the grace of God. Because you know the laws of God. You know you shouldn't do, you should do, you got to do, and everybody you should, ain't doing. And you know what they're doing to you. So obviously, all of this, right, is all up in this mix. And so what happens? We become these religious folk that depend on ourselves. And we're not ready to grow. We're ready to criticize everyone. We're ready to beat someone up with the gospel rather than bring them to Christ through the gospel. And so the first thing that is the first step in preparing is that you have got to make a conscious decision that you are going to conform to the image of Christ, that you are going to become like Jesus. And so he goes on to say, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So you've got to think differently. 
This word transformed, I want you to know, it's only used like four times in the New Testament. And I think three of the times that it's used or two of the times that it's used, it is used in the gospel. And it refers to Jesus' transfiguration. Y'all remember the transfiguration? For those of you that don't know, let me explain it really quickly. That is when Jesus took three of his disciples up to the top of a mountain. Moses and Elijah showed up, and the Bible says that Jesus became brilliantly white, that he began to glow. I mean, the glory of God began to manifest, and so the disciples were overwhelmed by that. And so they said he was transfigured. That was what occurred there. He was transformed. And so what is this telling us? When you think about that in context, what is God saying? God is saying the same way that Jesus literally took on another form, that is what Christians are supposed to do, not just once in a while, not only when they come out of a prayer time, not only when they go to church, but as they live their daily lives, they should be transformed, transfigured. We should be reflecting the life, the love, and the brilliance of Christ in every area. If we want to grow, that has to be our heart. And we have to come to repentance when we know that we are not doing that. Whether it is in our marriage, whether it is with our children, whether it is in our workplace, whether it is with our neighbors, no matter where it is that we know that the brilliance of Christ is not manifesting clearly, that should call us, if we call ourselves Christians, to repentance. That's what should be happening. That we are saying, God, I want to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. Again, he's still dealing with the whole sacrificial system. And when he goes on, he says that you will be able to prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. You know what he's saying? He's saying every decision you make, and we got to get this in our heart, every decision I make, everything that I do needs to come under that umbrella. Is it good? Is it acceptable? Is it perfect? Because every sacrifice under the old covenant that came to God had to be good, had to be acceptable, and had to be perfect. And so that means that our goal is to be like Jesus everything Jesus did was good acceptable and perfect and so we're supposed to live that kind of life but listen to me it's not by your religious checklist it's not by saying well I conquered this area I conquered that area I got this area right and so now I'm good no it is by continuing to acknowledge your necessity and dependence upon the grace of God that his grace is transforming you. That we are being transformed how? From glory to glory as we do what? As we look at Jesus. As we look upon Christ, that is what is supposed to be happening to us. So as we are transformed by the renewing of the mind, we no longer value what the world values. That's, that, that's the first thing. We no longer value what the world values. And we also come to the place that we experience freedom that we have in Christ as we become more aligned with his will and we begin to live on mission, seeking to do what? Bring glory and honor to Jesus. That's the first step that we have to take. When you read through this, and we just want to, I just want to read through this and then we're going to move on to the next point. But if we look at from verse 3, look at what he says. These are some of the mindsets that we as Christians are supposed to have. He says, for I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For, for as, we have, as we have many members and one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So that goes against that whole independence, autonomy, all by myself, doing my own thing. That means that we are supposed to be connected 
connected in a covenant manner. He says, having then, so now that we know that we're connected, how do we operate with each other? Well, first of all, we're going to operate based on some gifts. Verse 6 says, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith or ministry or service is another word there. Let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who, who shows mercy with cheerfulness. But he goes on because it's not solely about gifts because that's where we get stuck. Many times we think about the gifts and the things that we have to offer solely. But then he goes on to deal with character and how Christians should live and deal with one another. He says in verse 9, he says, let love be without hypocrisy. Some of y'all don't even like each other. We haven't even graduated to love. You just don't even like folk. You just, you know. So that calls you to repentance. That calls you to repentance. Calls me to repentance. Love without hypocrisy. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't act like you love folk. Don't harbor things in your heart towards people. He says, abhor what is evil. Among us as Christians, we need to call sin, sin. Thank you for one amen. Thank you for the other collective amens that have joined the party. Um, we need to call sin, sin. If it is sin, it is sin. We hate it. Why? That's what put Jesus on the cross. That is what murdered Jesus was sin. That is why he had to go to the cross, because of sin. So that's why we hate it. We don't compromise with it. We don't try to, um, you know, work with it. We don't try to suppress it. We hate it. When you abhor something, what does that mean? Y'all have like a certain food that you just really hate? When you smell it, you want to vomit, right? You do your best not to be around that particular thing. That's how we should be as Christians when it comes to sin. We should abhor it. Now, 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 let me, let me not, because see, then the religious folks start kicking in. You're, you're so right, Bishop. I abhor sin, therefore I can't talk to sinners. No. You hate what is evil, you don't hate those who practice it. Cling to what is good. And dealing with one another, this is the way that you, you know, this is the way that you love without hypocrisy. This, this, this is how you do it. You abhor what is evil. You let your brother and sister know that's sinful. That's not godly. That doesn't work. But you know what you do? You cling to what is good in them. You cling to the goodness that Jesus shows you. It says, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. Again, talking about love and honor, giving preference to one another. Do you prefer others before yourself? Are you willing to get up and give them your seat so they can sit? Or are you just like, this is my seat. I got here early, so. When you pull into the parking lot, do you think about, you know what, there might be more than two visitors who come here for the first and second time. Let me park around the back. I'll take a walk across the parking lot so that way the people who come here, they can park here. Do you think about that? I'm just asking a question. I'm not trying to offend. I'm trying to let you think. Do you, do, do you prefer others above yourself? How do you think about these type of things? He says, not lagging in diligence in verse 11, being diligent to do what God has called you to do, being diligent to serve one another, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, the hope of our salvation, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. And you see, when you talk about that word hospitality, you got to understand, that's what we're talking about. Have your neighbors been to your house to eat? Doesn't mean you got to have every single one of your neighbors at the same time over there, but can you just make an effort? Can we do that? 
Can you make an effort and invite some of your brothers and sisters? Y'all did a good job. You took step number one last week. You moved your seats. Now, you know what I want you to do? I want you to, when you leave this place, I want you to invite someone to your house. Glory to God. See, y'all didn't say amen. Glory to God. All right. (laughs) Invite someone that is here to your house, and that way you can begin to have some deeper relationship. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not, do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in, do- for in so doing you will heap coals of fire on his head. And do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So when we think about these things, the Bible tells us that we have to be renewed in the way that we think. The second point that I ask you to repeat after me is say collective contextualization of Christianity is the second step in our preparation for church growth. Turn your Bible to the next book, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I want you to see what I'm talking about here. The Apostle Paul makes it very clear as to what we are supposed to be doing. He did it as an example, and his example was that of Jesus who did it when he came to this earth for us. First Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19, when you got to say so. It says, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law as without law, not being without law toward God, but under the law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. Collective contextualization of Christianity is the second step in our preparation for church growth. And let me share this, and I'm going to be brief in these next two points. I have a lot to say toward the end. But here is what I want you to get about what the Apostle Paul is saying here. He's saying, look. I'm free of all men. In other words, I'm saved. I can do my own thing. I don't have to worry about anyone. He says, but I have made it a point to become all things to all men that I might save some. And so what he does is he contextualizes Christianity. He contextualizes the gospel. He goes to where these people are and he brings them. So here's the thing. If we believe, he brings them to Jesus. So if we believe that God wants his church to grow, we believe that, right? He wants it to grow more than we want it to grow. If we believe that God wants faith to grow, you believe that, right? We believe that, and if we believe that we are called to be missionaries in our culture, we must be committed to gospel contextualization. This is not making the gospel relevant, but it's, pres- but it's present- presenting it in a manner that is relevant to the situation. Here's, the, here's what I'm trying to say. 
is that no matter where you go, you can go to a hut somewhere in Mexico where they, you know, sleep like 15 people in a family in one room that is like the size of this little corner here in the altar. You can go there or you can go somewhere where there is great and glorious places and people are rich and have all kind of stuff. You can go to either one and the gospel applies to them the same way because it is not about someone being rich or being poor. It is about all of us being lawbreakers. Did you hear me? It is about everyone. See, in this place right now, there are two people in this place. There are only two types of people in this place or two labels that will give them. It is the person who is a Christian and it is the person who is not a Christian. I know some of you think almost a Christian is a Christian, but I want you to know if you're almost six feet tall, that means you're not six feet tall. You get that? Because here's the thing. Only Christians are going to heaven. I know you didn't want to hear that. Some of you, you know, got that pluralistic mentality like, really? But you're saying that good people are going to go to hell? If they don't trust Jesus, they will. That's bad. That is very bad news. Especially if you're sitting in here and you're trusting in your own good works in order to go to heaven. You're sitting here saying, well, you know, I kind of live like a Christian. You know, I don't curse. You know, I'm not getting drunk. I'm not beating my spouse. I'm not unfaithful to my spouse. I'm not like all these other people around me that are horrible. Right? And so ultimately, there are two people in the room. There are two people everywhere on planet Earth, Christian, non-Christian. There are people who have put their faith in Jesus and people who have not. There are people who understand that, you know what? I am a person who has broken God's laws. There are those people who understand that. And there are others who don't. There are other people who think they haven't broken enough laws to be guilty. Can I tell you something? You break one law, you're guilty. You go one mile over the speed limit. I know in some places there's like a window of five miles. And you think, I'm good because I got like a five-mile window. Listen, you broke the law when you went one mile over the speed limit. Whether you get a ticket or not is irrelevant. And even though you don't get caught statistically to like your thousandth time that you've broken the law, right? Then you get upset when you get caught that time. Man, I was only doing six miles over the speed limit. Yeah, but what about when you were doing 30 miles over the speed limit? What about when you ran through that red light that it turned red because you were like right there and you were like, man, if I slow down? What about that stuff? What about when I made that illegal U-turn? Nobody was there. I just made that. Guess who's been watching you all the time? The God of the universe. He's there. And so here's the thing is that everybody, everybody is under the same condemnation. Everybody is without hope because God is what? Say he's holy. He is holy. He is without sin. Sin is absent from who he is. He does no wrong, thinks no wrong. He is not evil. He is not wicked. He is different than us. And because of our sin, we're born into sin, but we also choose sin. Say we choose sin. We choose to sin. We choose to do the opposite of what God's word says. We're not just born into sin. We're not just guilty because of birth, because of Adam and Eve. No, we choose to sin. We choose to think thoughts that don't bring glory to God. We choose to do things that don't honor him. And on the flip side, we choose not to do things that we should do. So we are all sin. We are all sinful, lawbreakers. And so what happens to a person who breaks the law? A person who breaks the law has to pay the consequence, especially if you have a just judge. And is our God not a just God? We better hope so. He's a just God. And so what does he do? 
He sends his son Jesus to die in our place so that way we could do what? We could be freed from our guilt. Oh, he's awesome. We could be freed from our guilt. Everybody in this place, listen, if you're a Christian, you should be rejoicing. I don't know why you're so quiet, but anyway, just stay like that because that's how you want to be. But listen, if you're a Christian, you should be like, yes, I'm forgiven. I'm unworthy. I ain't all that. Definitely not a bag of chips. Hello. But if you're not a Christian, I just want you to hear God saying he loves you. If you're not a Christian, I want you to hear that God says, I paid the price for every one of your sins. And there's one response. There's actually two. You can reject him. You can walk out of here not a Christian and be like, yeah, I don't know if I believe all that. Or you can respond to him. And you can say, I put my faith in you because you died in my place so that way I could have life eternal. And so I wouldn't have to earn my way into heaven. I wouldn't have to try to figure it out if I've balanced the scales enough, if I've done enough good stuff to outdo the bad stuff. No, Jesus died for all the bad stuff, and now I can trust in him fully. That is the heart, and that is the gospel. And what we have to do is we have to contextualize that message wherever we are. So you know what that means? If I go to a place where they're sleeping in that hut and they're living in that area, I better have at least a translator with me so the way they can communicate that message. Because if not, I'm going to be way out of context. I'm not going to be able to bring the gospel to them in that, in that setting. And if I'm sitting around people that are millionaires, billionaires, if I'm sitting around people that got all kind of money, that don't seem to have any problems in the world, I need to be able to talk to them about their desperate need for Jesus in a way that is clear and a way that is concise. That is what contextualization is. And what Paul did is he said, you know what, for those people that are weak and what he's talking about are those people that, you know, have some hang-ups and things like that. He said, I became like them. I didn't do the things that I knew were going to offend them. For example, you have people that they grew up in certain religious backgrounds. There are certain things that they will not do. You know what you should do as a loving person who loves Jesus and wants them to show and wants to show them the love of Jesus? You should not do those things that are going to offend them for one reason, because you love Jesus and you want them to know him. You become like those people. You don't become like them in essence and walk in sin. That's not what you do. What you do is you humble yourself with repentance. You humble yourself before God. You pray for their salvation and you contextualize. I want to give you the definition of contextualization according to one of the books that I was reading dealing with gospel contextualization. And it is this. It is the communication of the gospel in a particular place, in a particular time, and in a particular culture to a particular people in a way that it can be understood without diluting the truth. Contextualization is to communicate the gospel in a particular place, a particular time, in a particular culture, to a particular people in a way that it can be understood without diluting the truth. That is what we're called to do. We want to prepare for growth. Those are the things that need to happen. As believers or disciples of Jesus who are on mission, we should, we should follow the example of Paul who relinquished, who, who, who relinquished all of his rights to live for himself. He relinquished his right to live independently. He, relinqu he relinquished his right to live autonomously. And he relinquished his right to live isolated. And what he did was he said, I'm not going to be a law to myself. I'm not going to do my own thing. But I'm going to live in a way that I can share the gospel with every single person. I come in contact with. That's what he decided to do. 
Contextualization must never be confused with conformity. Conformity is watering down the gospel for political correctness or compromising the message of the gospel because you don't want to hurt someone's feelings. Contextualization is living out the gospel in a manner that impacts, that penetrates, and influences our culture. The bottom line is this, contextualization is starting where people are and bringing them to Jesus. That's what it is. It's looking around you. And when you talk about contextualization, look at your neighborhood. Look at your neighbors. Look at the places that you work. That's where God is calling you as an individual to contextualize so you can do what God has called you to do. The third point that I'll share with you is this. Say this with me. Mission. We must be on mission to confront our culture. That's the third step. Say that. That's the third step. And our preparation for church growth. We must be on mission. We must be willing and ready to confront our culture, to confront those in the culture with this gospel message. I used the word a couple of weeks ago when we were having our prayer services, and Pastor Aldo was like, what was that word? And, you know, they thought it was not a word, and I don't know if this one is a word, but whatever, I'll use it again. Um, but missiologist, say missiologist. That is a person who studies church mission. That's what it is. It is a person who studies the mission field of the church. It is a person who studies how we are supposed to go out and share the gospel. So we become those who are on mission. And what do we need to, what do, we need to do? We need to study some demographics. We need to study the natural rhythms of our culture. And we need to see where people are in our culture so that way we can effectively confront them. I'm going to give you one example. And then I'm going to talk to you about some specific demographics. And then we will close in prayer. But here's the thing. There was an example that was given in one of the books talking about community that we'll read soon um, in preparation for 2013 and dealing with community groups. But what happened was there was a desire to reach a particular community. When this is what, and, and I'm using this as an example for rhythms because I'm not using any other examples. We're going to look at some demographics. But here's the thing. In this particular community, they were a community that they all used to work in these warehouses that were like an hour away from their, that, that particular town. That's what most of the people did there. And so they had to figure out what was going to be the best time for them to connect with that community and reach them with the gospel. And so normally for, you know, most of us, we think, you know, people get out of work at like 5 or 6 o'clock or whatever. So have a community group like around 7, and then you're going to be able to reach people. Well, that particular community, because of what they did, the people there used to get up, and, or they had to be at work at 6, and they got off of work at 2. So if you had a community group that was going to start at 7 o'clock, guess what? You were going to be by yourself. Because what? Everybody else, they're getting ready to go to bed. they got to be up at 4 o'clock in the morning. So they're not thinking, man, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to hang out. So you know what they had to do? They had to contextualize in a manner looking at the natural rhythms. And what they did was they started a community group that was in that neighborhood that did what? That catered to the time that most people were going to be getting out of work. And that they were going to be able to come and enjoy the, the, the necessity of community. They didn't try to go and create another rhythm for these people to follow. But they said, let's flow with the natural rhythm. That makes us more effective in our contextualization of the gospel, don't you think? I'm going to give you a couple of demographics here. First of all, I'm going to read some things. And then after I'm done reading, we're going to put some stuff up here on the screen. But the first thing, I want to give you some, some demographics of the city where God has placed us. Real simple demographics. You can write these down. You can think about them, whatever. But here it is. Oviedo, the population of Oviedo. You know how many people are in Oviedo? 33,342 people. 
33,342 people are in the city of Oviedo. So I did some math, and I was like, okay, so if we have like around 36 churches, and we divided that number by 36 churches evenly, that would mean that 900 people per church could be what it could be. If we reached every person for the gospel and we just split this thing like evenly, so I was like, okay, God, I'm going to believe you for like 800 people. Praise the Lord. Right? I'm just saying, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take my piece. I don't know about anybody else, but I'm going to say, you know what, God, this is, this, I'm going to be fair. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to try to take anyone else. I'm going to go ahead and do what I think you call me to do, at least in this city, right? That, that's a good thing. But here's some more demographics that you have to understand about Oviedo. This is the way that it's broken down. And I want you to know that throughout the nation, in a, in a lot of places it's like that, specifically, and the one that I'll talk about next, is in a 10-mile radius. This is almost the exact identical breakdown, a couple of percentage points either way. In Oviedo, of those 33,342 people, 69% of them are Caucasian. 16% of them are Hispanic. 8% of them are African American, 3%, 3% are Asian, 2% um, claim more than two races, so it's a mixed family, and then 0.2% are American, Indian, or Alaskan Native. That is what the demographics are. So the highest amount of people, that or percentage of people that live in this area, in Oviedo, is Caucasian. The next highest is who? Hispanics. It's important for us to know because if we're going to be on mission, what do we need to do? We need to know who we're reaching. Now, there's another thing that I did here um, or that I had done for me, and I, I, I didn't do it myself. Are we ready for that, Lewis? I hope we are. Yes? Okay, I'm just going to go. There we go. Good, good, good. So if you see here in this map, there are, this is, this is a study area with zip codes. And so basically, we are like right here. You see where this, uh, let me see, does this thing have a pointer? Hey, man, we can point. Hallelujah. That's, that's so cool. So right there, see that? Let me see if I can get in the middle. There we go. I can't keep it steady, but there it is. See right there? That's where we are, right here. So this whole circle around us, that is a 10-mile radius, and so we're going to look at those statistics in that 10 miles because it's important for us to realize that we cannot just be stuck in Oviedo. Let me, just real quick, how many of y'all live in Oviedo? Raise your hand if you live in Oviedo. Okay, so that tells me something. Keep those hands up high. I need, I need them high. So everybody else that doesn't have their hand up, you don't live in Oviedo and you come to this church. Right? Obviously, you're here today, glory to God. And for our guests, we appreciate you being with us. You can put your hands down now. So what happens is you have a bunch of people that are coming to Faith Dome, which is awesome because it means that we are reaching the way that God wants us to reach. Most of you, there are some of you, there's a couple of exceptions. I won't say any names, but there's obviously a couple of exceptions. You live way out of that 10 mile. You wish, you were like, Bishop, I wish I lived 15 miles, glory to God. All right? That's fine. But here's the thing. We have to look at this 10-mile radius. So there, there are four things that we're going to look at. One of them is people and places. One of them is community issues. The other one is faces of diversity. The other one is faith preference. We're not going to look at every single thing that's going to come up. But what we do want to do is we want to look at some of these principles because of what? Because if we're going to be on mission, who are we reaching? If we're going to be on mission, where is it that God has entrusted us with in order for us to be able to move forward? So people in places. So when you look at this, the first thing that you find is that th these are important statistics. The first one that you see there, P1, is projected population density. It is very high. That means that there are a lot of people in this area. This is not like some rural area where people are like, you know, 10 miles away from each other. You can see like the new houses that they're building. They're like townhouse type scenarios. People are living right on top of each other. And so what are they doing? They're making 
making this place more dense, and it's going to continue to be that way. And so it's very high as far as density. There's another thing as far as growth. Growth is going to be moderate, um, somewhat dispersed, you know, as far as where people are living. Diversity, extremely high. you got to know that. Because you can't just try to reach one group of people. You have to understand that we are dealing with a diverse type of people that are here. And then as far as dynamic, which means that there's like a bunch of different, you know, nationalities and things like that that are going on. There's a lot of dynamics. So, again, that goes with diversity. And so, not to get into this in total, in total, but up here, this first one. How many people live in the defined study area? There are currently 501, to, 501 and 20 persons residing in this, divine, in this defined area. Now, if you take that and divide that by, like, I don't know, like 300 churches, because there's probably like 300 churches within a 10-mile radius, which is crazy. But nonetheless, I, I didn't do that number. I'm just saying you can do that if you want to. But ultimately... What we have here is we see there's a lot more people in that 10-mile radius, isn't there? A lot more people for us to reach with the gospel. And so we want to understand that, the, that th this particular area has got a lot of people for us to reach. The same, the same um, statistics as the other one. They got a, a projected growth there that is like, you know, about, I think it's about 50 people or so, 50,000 people or something like that. Faces of diversity. Let's look at this. Lifestyle groups, middle America, so you know, middle, middle class is about, you know, pretty much what's around here. And, and again, this is an average. This is not like every person in here. There's some people that are lower, and there are some people that are higher, but it all averages out. Middle America, um, very high, non-Anglo or non-Caucasian population. We need to know that. That's important. What is the fastest race, racial ethnic growth, growth? That is Hispanics or Latinos. The generation that is here, this, is, this one is very important for us. Survivors. Because that's the age group of people that we're dealing with. And so right here, survivors, it's the age group between 29 and 49. And we'll look at that specifically in a moment. But that's the generation of people that are there. As far as family structure, it's mixed. There's some families, single moms. I think it's like, we'll look at it. It's 22% single moms, 7% single dads. The rest are married couples. So it's mixed. Education, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of people that have higher education in this particular area. So you can't be, you know, just crazy and dumb. You got to be educated as a church to be able to deal with them correctly. Amen? I'm going to have to stop making up words because we're so educated. Glory to God. So we have... <laughs> We, we, we have these different diversities. Again, we have the survivors here that we looked at. 31% of the people that are in this area, that's the highest. And then the second highest is our, is our children or, you know, yeah, pretty much our children. So between 29 and 49, 31%. And then 28% between 9 and, and, and 28. So that means that that's the area of people that we need to be dealing with. Those are the, those are the people, the age group. Why does that matter? I'm going to tell you something. I was listening to a, um, there's a thing called assimilation, and some of you will hear about this a little bit more. But assimilation is basically getting a person from being a first-time visitor to being a committed member in the church. And in one of their things, they were talking about making a phone call. Now, for me, it's like natural. We should call somebody when they visit the church, right? Don't you think that's a nice thing? Right? You know that most people that are under 40, not I didn't say all because some of you are under 40, you're going to disagree with this. Most people that are under 40, I'm under 40. Most people that are like under 40, they don't want you to call them. Send them a text. My wife is always like, why y'all texting so much? It would take you like two minutes. I'm like, I don't even know. I'm just responding to a text. Glory to God. But ultimately, they said, and, and this, these are from people that are growing churches, coaching, doing stuff like that. They're like, you know what? Some people, they don't want to get a phone call. I remember we, we, we actually changed our, our, our you know, visitor card, and we had email on there. I took email off because people were putting their email address, not their address or their phone number. I'm like, I don't want to send you an email. 
But you know what they were saying? I want an email. Why is that important? Because if you want people to come back, you can't make them feel overwhelmed with things that they're not expecting. He gave an example, and I, and I close this little point here with this. He gave an example. He said that they have their, their visitor cards and things like that. On the back of the card is a commitment area. So if you make a first-time commitment to Jesus, you commit to be baptized, you make a commitment for whatever reason, rededicate your life or whatever, they mark that on the back. And so one of the pastors of the church, he actually got on the phone to call this person and just congratulate them about their commitment and let them know that, you know, he he recognized that they made a commitment doing a good, nice pastoral thing, right? The person's friend came up to the pastor and said, man, my friend came last week, really enjoyed it, but I don't think they're going to come back. Why? Because you called them. Change is inevitable. Growth is optional. We have to be able to accommodate. Don't change the, mes the message. Make sure that our methods are applicable to our situation, right? So, when we look at the, the family structures again, here we are. We see the single, married. Some of y'all probably can't read this, but I'm just pointing to it anyway. Single, never been married, like 29%. Divorced, 16%. 55% uh, married. And then you have single mothers. These are, these are households with children. 22% single moms. So that means that we have a big group of people that we can reach. Amen? 7% single fathers. Not so big, but we can still reach them as well. And then we have married couples. And so ultimately we need to understand that. Now let's look at community issues really quickly. We don't have a whole bunch here. Most of the people in the community, this is, this is what happens. Primary concern, everybody has this basic issue here. And you'll see in the next page. The basic issue, you know, basic concerns about their family, whatever those may be. Whatever your basic concerns are, everybody has those. Um, hopes and dreams, that's like the biggest one. That's why like things like purpose-driven life and stuff like that are so important. And that why, why they're so popular, because people want, you know, they need to have some dreams, some hopes, things like that. Now, this is the one that I think is the most important statistic here. Potential resistance to change. Can I say something? All, most of y'all live in this 10-mile radius. Potential resistance to change, somewhat high. He's talking about us. This is my point. He's not just talking about them out there. It is us that are also potentially resistant to change. That's, that's the way that we are. So moving on here, you look at the reason why. It's because as the group gets older, and so average age is around 37 in this particular demographic, and so that's why they're, they're more um, likely to be resistant to change. And so now let's look at faith preferences. This is important as well, right? If we're going to be on mission, we need to know what people are like in our particular area. Faith receptivity, it's average. So pretty much, you know, throughout the nation here, it's, a, it's around the same. Some places are higher, some places are lower. Some people as individuals you know from conversations, they're absolutely not receptive, and they would fall to the very low side. Financial support, I'm not worried about that right at this moment. Um, but then we have church style. So some people are really from a traditional background or would prefer a traditional church. Others would predict or, or would desire something more contemporary. We would lean more toward the contemporary side of the church. Church program reference now, look, or, 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 or preference. This is important. Look what people want to do. They want to have fun. They want to do that. That's what they want. They don't want to come and worship. They don't want to come here to hear me preach for like an hour and a half. <laughs> they, they want to go have some fun. That's what they want to do. Recreation. This is important, though, because how are we going to reach them? Through recreation. In other words, being a Christian doesn't have to be boring. I mean, it shouldn't be boring. It's not boring for me. I don't know if it's boring for you, but ultimately, it shouldn't be that way. 
and then have religious preferences, it's average. And so that's the way they look at it. So what is the likely faith receptivity? Um, this is what it is, and this is, this is a very important number here. 37% of the people that are within this 10-mile radius are not involved in church at all. No kind of religious activity at all in their life. That's 37%. That's already one-third. Then we have another percentage right here. 30% are somewhat involved. Let me tell you what somewhat involved probably means. It means that they know of a church. They probably don't attend there, but maybe once a month, maybe once a quarter. There are plenty of people that have said, oh, I have a church. And they're like, what church do you go to? Faith Dome. They've never even been to this church except once. <laughs> I'm, I'm letting you know. And so they'll tell you Faith Dome is their church, but they don't. They, they, anyway, they ain't here. So 30%. <laughs> Somewhat uninvolved. So that's two-thirds of our population that I'm going to say not really involved in any kind of religious activity. So we have a 33% that is strongly involved. So one-third of this area is strongly involved in church, committed to church, part of small groups, different things like that. And so what is it that we're supposed to do? We're supposed to look at this 67% and figure out how do we reach them with the gospel. How do we do that? Figuring out who they are, figuring out where they live, finding out what their natural rhythms of life are, and then we reach them. We contextualize the gospel and bring that to them. And so... Do households prefer an overall, this is F3 over here, prefer an overall church style, which is more traditional or contemporary? It's pretty, it's pretty split um, on that. And so either way, we just need to reach people with the gospel. All that other stuff will fall into place. Which general church programs or services are most people likely to be preferred in the area? We already said that. 24% spiritual development. So 24 people in this area, which is kind of crazy because you think about it, 24% here, 33% here. So 33% strongly involved, but only 24% like that's really like what they want to grow spiritually. So that tells you that even in this 33%, we need some help. Recreation is the biggest one. Community social service, 19%. 10% personal development, 24% growth here. And so how likely are people to have some religious preference? This is pretty high. There's like 77% that have a historic Christian group background, something like that. And so that's a good thing because within this one-third over here that we have that is really in church and the two-thirds that are not, these people know something about Jesus. Some of them, some way, shape, or form, they have some recognition of church. 14% have no preference, and then 8%. So that's the end of our show here. Good show, right? Praise the Lord. I hope you learned something. We're closing, and I want to tell you this. By studying our culture, we can know how to become more intentional and focused upon our mission. By knowing who's around. Now listen, I put all these numbers on there. Really, what should happen is you and I should be living a life that is intentionally impacting our communities. So we should know a lot of this stuff. But the fact is, this is what we as a church collectively are dealing with. So this gives us some things that we can pray about. This gives us some things that we can really ask God to deal with. And here's the, here's the reason why. is because we're not trying to turn a culture backwards, but we're trying to influence a culture as much upwards with the gospel. We're not trying to get people to go back to, you know, the good old days. Listen to me. The good old days are gone. Let me say that again. The good old days are gone. I know we live in the, you know, the Botox culture, right? We try to stop aging. And I think in Christianity, you know, we have like our spiritual Botox. I don't know. 
Like we just want, no, we, we need to be like this. This is how it used to be. Listen, there's some good used to be's all up in the book of Acts and some good used to be's throughout church history. But a lot of them that, that are in, intertwined with tradition, a lot of them are intertwined with tradition. And some of us, we want the tradition more than we want what we're supposed to have, which is a true devotion to the gospel. And so it's not about trying to take a culture backwards. It's about trying to bring them to Jesus. And we do that by knowing who we're dealing with. And so preparing for growth, it begins with a mindset shift. We started in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. It starts with a mindset shift. Not to solely want to grow. Here's the thing I want you to get. It's not enough, church, for us to want to grow. It's not enough. If you go and you search, you know, on, you can go online and say, what should I look for in a good church? And there's going to be a whole bunch of stuff, and they're going to say a church that's growing is going to definitely be one of the things that should be there. And they're talking specifically about numbers. And so here's the thing that I want you to get. It's not enough for us just to want to grow. We have to want to change so that way we can grow. Because here's the reality. If we don't change, we won't grow. If we don't change the way that we think, if we don't change the way that we are, then we're not being faithful with the gospel. And so we're not going to grow the way that God wants us to. I spoke earlier about the two groups of people in this place, the one that does not know Jesus, the one that does know him, the one that is a Christian, the one that is not a Christian. And so here's what I want to ask you. Throughout this time that I was speaking, maybe when I was dealing with some statistics, something around there, I was talking about a specific, a specific topic or point in this message. What mindsets do you need to repent of? What mindsets? Because I know I have mine that I need to repent of. I have thought processes that I need to repent of. Maybe you need to repent of a secular mindset. A mindset that finds its identity outside of Jesus. A mindset that finds pleasures that are opposed to what Jesus says you should find pleasure in. A mindset that has pursuits that are outside of who Jesus is and his will for your life. Maybe those are things that you need to repent of. Maybe you just have a religious mindset. Maybe you've been in church and you are just self-righteous. You just, I mean, you, you, you have a self-righteousness about you. You just have a certain way. And you know what? That has to change if we as a church are going to move forward and you as a Christian are going to continue to grow. Maybe you need to repent of some judgmental attitudes. Maybe you need to repent of some unforgiveness or bitterness towards people because you are so righteous, they are so unrighteous, they've offended you so much. I don't know. Maybe that's the situation or that's what has to happen within your heart. But where is it that you as a person have to repent? Where is it? Where is it that you need to put your faith in Christ and say, Lord, I'm trusting you for this? The reason why this is so important, because we have to grow. We have to grow as individuals to see the church grow the way God wants us to grow. Maybe you're just all about yourself, self-absorbed. It's all about you. Maybe that's your issue. Maybe you're that person that God was really speaking to you about, your desire to be isolated. Maybe God was really speaking to you about you wanting to be autonomous and just, you know, not be committed and all that. kind. Maybe God was dealing with you on that. And if that is him dealing with you, don't reject him today. Don't reject him today. Let's all stand to our feet, please.